You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er family, welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Toby Tompkins. Toby is a writer, speaker, social innovator, and founder of Safio LLC, a mobile-first, artificially intelligent leadership development platform that helps develop and inspire leaders who are facing important real-time business and social challenges. And Toby knows a thing or two about leadership. Having over 30 years of experience working across corporate, nonprofit, government, and international development sectors as a senior level executive, consultant, and executive coach, Toby has worked across several continents with everyone from grassroots activists to heads of state. He's also a published author and currently hosts the Real Lives of Strong Black Men podcast, which explores the thoughts, feelings, and lived experiences of Black men from all walks of life and all parts of the world. Now, I could go on and on about Toby's contributions across various industries, but I'll let him give you the details. Let me just say this. When I think about our conversation, two words come to mind, and they are integration and innovation. So take a listen and please enjoy. Mr. Tompkins. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. A little jet lag, but I'm good. Yeah, you're a trooper. Yeah, Red eye like... flight to an interview. <laughs> Good on you, because I don't know if I would have scheduled that, but <laughs> I'm here for now. <laughs> okay. So um let's jump into it then. Sure. Well, let's talk about first how we met. Because we have very like just these random but not random encounters um with people. And we were at in the place that we're recording now. We were here for a meeting about the recording. Okay. And you and they were closed, but you know the owners who yes, happened to stop by. Of theirs, yeah. And we just struck up a conversation. Yeah. Well, and, it helps um, that your brother and I are in the same fraternity. Well, that is true, because alphas are just is, in every corner of the globe. As they should be. It's yes. very fascinating to me <laughs> how he seems to find one, no matter where we are. We can feel it. Yeah. So that's how we met you, but yeah. just heard a little bit about your story and thought, hey, this this could be a great guest for the oh, show. So we're you. happy thank to have you. you. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. So here. jumping into it, tell us who is Nathaniel Toby Tompkins. Well, Nathaniel Toby Tompkins is actually Nathaniel Patrick Tompkins, which really? is my middle name mm-hmm. that no one ever uses that my mother gave me in honor of the doctor who delivered me, Patricia, her name was. Mm-hmm. And uh, Nathaniel is my daddy's name because he was from Georgia. And then, of course, Tompkins is my slave master's name, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's that family name. Um, but Toby came from a John Wayne movie that my parents were watching when I was still in the breadbasket. And it was, um, the movie was called The High and the Mighty. Mm-hmm. And it was a movie where John Wayne played an airplane pilot. And in the middle of the movie was an, in, in the movie was an extra, some little kid named Toby, who basically, I guess the plane was going from one place to another. And it was, you know, they ran into turbulence and everybody mm-hmm. thought they were going to die. And so people were telling all their confessions. And throughout all of the chaos, this little kid named Toby was asleep. And they decided to name me after an extra in a John Wayne movie. And that's Toby. That's where Toby came from. So were you a calm baby? No. <laughs> so the, the name, what the name embodied in the movie didn't quite translate. No, the, I, I, I call it my activist name because mm-hmm. growing up, the, my name always got me into trouble. Mm-hmm. And then Roots happened. Yes. I was going to bring that up. Yeah. And when Roots happened, I was, you know, a six foot tall, quiet um, high school violinist. Mm. in a desegregated school. And I went from being quiet Black kid who played in the orchestra to Toby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I had to start kicking butt because it literally, it invoked, vi- like, like it invoked violence. Sure. Like, people wanted to mess with me. And so it literally turned my life around. And all of a sudden, and then things happened. Like, um, someone, I had, a, I had a car in high school um, when I turned 15, 16. And, um, Someone threw a cigarette red butt in the back seat to try and turn, you know, set the car on fire. Wow. Just crazy stuff that happened all because of the, you know, it was the sort of the reaction to mm-hmm. this conversation, this story that was being told about American history. Well, what's interesting to me is that from like the moment I met you, you're very metropolitan. Like it's very obvious that you travel, traveled, refined, cultured, um, et cetera. And then we we talked a little bit about your background. And I, I don't know if I would have pegged 
you as someone who has Southern roots. We all do, right? But having grown up there. So where did you grow up? Um, so I exactly. grew up in the land of Joe Biden, mm-hmm. Wilmington, Delaware. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, all I've ever known in terms of a political figure in my life has been Joe Biden because he's been a senator for so long. Right. So, so I grew up in Wilmington um, and um, and Biden was a mentor to my cousin who, mm-hmm. who was a who was a judge, Leonard Williams, who since passed on. And so so I've always so I grew up in that sort of culture and context. Wilmington, Delaware is sort of that great city that's in between two, you know, or more world class cities, Philadelphia, mm-hmm. Washington, D.C. Um, it's a place that people always pass through, right. <laughs> you know, or they come to because there are no taxes. It's that sort of but it's never had its own real, real identity. I always felt like Delaware and Wilmington in particular was where I entered the planet. It mm-hmm. was never a place that I felt like was home. And um, and I, I think I'm still on the journey of trying to establish a sense of what feels like home. You know, I never still. really felt rooted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My whole life, I've lived a lot of places, but they're home for a while. Mm-hmm. So what was your home life like? Because just the fact that you said like you had a car, <laughs> you know, in high school, um, it sounds like a, a pretty middle class upbringing. It was um, we were upper working class. People. OK, mm-hmm. <laughs> not quite middle class, mm-hmm. but um, but yeah, I didn't I didn't realize that we were poor until I went to college, like until I went into the world, yeah. like, you know, but by standards, we were poor. I mean, my my mother was a stay at home mom. She was a an LPN, but mm-hmm. when when I was born and I'm I'm an only child, um, my father insisted that she raise us because they were in their 40s when I was born, mm-hmm. and so um, my father was a retired, had done 20 years in the Navy, and then was working, um, did 22 more years in the Veterans Administration as a physical therapy assistant. Wow. So so that was the work, and and our day was very very. Um, I thought everybody grew up this way. I mean, you know, we went to church. My parents were devout Masonic people, mm-hmm. you know, father, Prince Hall Mason, my mother ordered the Eastern Star. So I grew up in that structure. Um, we were, you know, the the integrating family at the United Methodist Church, mm. <laughs> that sort of. So we had a lot of that stuff. Um, dinner was always at 4.30 every day, you know. 4.30, wow. 4.30, <laughs> you know, um, right in time to watch Merv Griffin and Dark Shadows. <laughs> you, you don't know nothing about that. But, but yeah, so I grew up in what I thought was that kind of a, um, I thought that was how everybody lived. Mm-hmm. I mean, for most of my childhood. Um, and then um, I went to, most I was mostly the integrating, you know, child uh, okay. throughout all, you know, all of from elementary school all the way up. But it never became I never felt that label until high school. Mm-hmm. High school was when I when the, when the conversation changed about who I was as a black child and I became a black, a young black man. And then all of a sudden fear entered into the conversation and how and having to pay attention to how I was presenting in the world, you know. So my mother and father would have put me in a priest outfit if they could thought it would have kept me safe yeah. going out into the world every day. Um, conversations about um, how to engage with the police didn't happen. There wasn't that kind of threat. You know, there was never a fear necessarily that that my child might go out and not come home because of police brutality. Mm-hmm. That wasn't the case in 19, in the, in Wilmington, Delaware, in the 70s, that wasn't the case necessarily, at least in my experience where I grew up. But there was still fear, mm-hmm. you know, and there were still moments when um, the fact that I was not aligning up with the stereotypes that many of my colleagues and co-students were having about what it meant to be. And I'm, I was also the only black kid they knew. And I wasn't playing drums and I wasn't playing sports. And so all of a sudden they were going home and saying, well, my friend Toby plays a violin and he's great at, you know, sciences and he doesn't talk like them, you know. Mm-hmm. And then their parents couldn't explain that, rationalize that to them. So they would come back and ask me. It would be and I would just say, well, your parent, your, your grandfather's sick. That's your precious problem. You know, he's got he's ignorant. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then that would cause a problem. And then I'd end up, you know. Right. So, yeah, it, it was. But my parents always made me hold and defend my voice and my thoughts. So they made me um, articulate what I was experiencing and what I and how I felt about what I was experiencing. And and that I I I'm thankful to them because I was never, ever afraid to say this is what happened and here's how I feel about it. Mm -hmm. And here's who I think is accountable. 
Well, I find it interesting because you hear all these stories about people who grew up with a military parent, especially a military dad, mm-hmm. um, of feeling like they couldn't express their feelings about anything. But it sounds like that wasn't your story. No, it wasn't. And, mm-hmm. and it's part because of my father's upbringing in the South. So my father was born and raised in Albany, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And what I learned later was that the reason he went into the Navy is because my grandfather, um, my father got into a fight with some guys. He was coming home one night and, you know, the sidewalks are narrow and there were a bunch of white kids who were coming down the street. And they, in those days, if the street was narrow and a black person was approaching a group of white people, they were to step into the street. And my father is a very proper, very proud, you know, man. And he was also a boxer. (laughs) I mean, he was, you know, and he was not going to do it. He was not going to like step into the street around these young white kids. So it went down. They went down. My father knocked him out and kept and went home. It was a fight. Well, the guy started, came around, started looking for my dad. Mm-hmm. And my, my, fa- my grandfather said, you got to get out of town. And so he went and enrolled him in the Navy. Wow. And that's, that's how my father's career got set. Literally to just of, stay alive, basically. Just to stay yeah. alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I later met a woman who actually lives here in Harlem, um, who I did some work with, whose father was the lawyer in Albany who used to give black families money when they needed to get out of town. And when you think about like this wasn't that long ago, I think sometimes this was in my lifetime, in right? your <laughs> lifetime, things like this were happening. You, you had an incident. And if you wanted your family to survive, you took whatever you had and you just moved like you, you, you had to get out of right, there. Yeah. Or you put that child on a bus mm-hmm. at night out. Right. Yeah. To the South or the North, because up North, when your child was in trouble, they sent them South. Right. But I didn't know that it happened the other way around, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very. So our our whole, you know, the great migration has always been fueled by racism. Absolutely. <laughs> like, you know, it hasn't been about economic opportunity. It's been about racism. Absolutely. And survival. So yeah. where do you think your father's connection and respect, connection to and respect for your feelings came from, considering his upbringing, which I assume would have to harden you in some way? So... It was my mother. <laughs> my father was the quiet but strong type, but my mother was the Scorpio woman mm. who was not taking anybody's nonsense. So she was the one that would have the conversation. So I used to, my bedroom was above the kitchen. So at night when I was supposedly asleep, mm-hmm. I heard everything going on downstairs. Uh, so it was her telling him, you need to go take him and do this, that, and the other and or go to the school because you don't want me to do it. <laughs> that was her. That was her frame. And then he would be, he would do it to protect her right. <laughs> and me, you know. So, but I think they both co-parented well. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was never a moment where I felt like I was going to get what I wanted by manipulating one or the other. Like that just wasn't going to happen <laughs> in my household, you know. So yeah. But I think it came from um, um, confidence, yeah, pride, um, uh, responsibility, sense of responsibility. Um, you know, my parents really wanted to get parenting right. Mm-hmm. They were older. So my mother had been married four times before my father. Four times. Oh, yeah. She was a Liz Taylor of her day. <laughs> and she had had two other kids who were grown when I was born. Really? One, my my half sister was 20 years my senior and my older half brother was 22 years wow. my senior. So they they I have nieces and nephews who were older, much older than me. So she had her own stuff about what kind of mother she was with them. My father was in the Navy, so, you know, he didn't have any kids and I was his only child. So they both had this intentional sort of like, we're going to get this right. And they were in their 40s when I came around. So they had they had lived their lives and they knew what they wanted. Wow. And they knew how life worked. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think it was it was a unique situation. For for sure. So you mentioned that you were quiet and into music and all those things. I believe we are inherently who we are. Right. Mm -hmm. But do you think. Even before you got to high school, being the one to basically integrate your schools contributed to your quiet demeanor. I was quiet on the outside because I was loud on the inside. Okay. So I'm a Gemini. Mm-hmm. And so I'm always in multiple conversations and they kept me engaged. Mm-hmm. And I really was. And as an only child, you learn, you, you entertain yourself. You So I was always very inquisitive, very curious, very much a self-initiator. Um, I always had projects that of things, you know, I love nature. I love Jacques Cousteau. Mm-hmm. I mean, I loved these things that were very sort of investigative things, but didn't require me to be social. 
And um, I didn't have a problem being social, but I actually was more interested in those kinds of things than in what the other third grader was interested mm-hmm. in, so to speak. And how did you discover violin? Um, it discovered me. So in school, they started me off on drums. And I was like, no. And then they moved me to piano. And I said, no. And then they moved me to sax because they figured, oh, he's a big black guy. He can play the sax. <laughs> and I said, hell no. <laughs> and I don't know. I just picked up the violin and I loved the sound of it. Mm-hmm. And um, but I was embarrassed because like I had never I had no right. concept of a black man playing a violin. <laughs> like that was crazy. You know, like who does that? And um, so my mother pushed it. She went and bought me a violin. And then I was like, oh, God, now I have to perform. There's an expectation here. And I ended up getting a scholarship to the Wilmington Music School. Wow. Yeah. My music was playing the violin was was core to my growing up. Um, because once again, I integrated the, 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 you know, the music school. My teacher was a German music teacher who was uh, with the Wilming, with the Delaware Symphony. And he said, you know, your child is a talent. So he really pushed me. And I ended up being in the training orchestra. And then I went on and became assistant concertmaster in the Delaware State's, you know, youth orchestra and blah, 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 blah. And the expectation early in my life was that I was going to become a concert violinist. Mm-hmm. Their expectation. And I just loved playing it, but I didn't want it to be my bread and butter. So that was our my sort of first teenage conflict was, mm-hmm. no, I'm going to become a doctor or a lawyer. I'm not going to become a violinist. Um, and even in that, I uh, had to deal with the identity piece, because when I when you're in an orchestra, a training orchestra, you're always it's a very competitive space. So at any point in time, the orchestra seats for every instrument are set up in sort of hierarchy. You have first violin, first section, mm-hmm. second section in order wherever you sit is determined based on a competition. And at any point in time, someone can challenge you and your chair. So you must always be prepared to fight, basically. So I always had to have a concerto or an etude or something to defend, to pre- be able to produce my best right. to save my chair. So I got into a competition with, and I ended up in the second chair first section. I was the assistant concertmaster, this orchestra. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't, I, I could not believe that I was in that chair. And so I went home and I told my parents, I think I was put in the chair because I'm black. Like I had gotten that in my head that, you know, and they said, really, you think so? So they take me down. This is what they would do. This stuff I would hate. This is what I was used to. it. They took me down, scheduled a meeting with the executive director, Mr. Steven Gunzenhauser. And they said, tell him what you told us. And I told him, I said, I, I'm assistant concertmaster. Yes, I know. I heard we're very proud of you. Blah, blah, blah. You work very hard. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. I know y'all put me in that chair because I'm black. And Mr. Gunzenhauser, you know, you know, when you're a child, you're looking up. So right. I have all these memories looking up into, you know, um, said, I run a very important organization. I. I, you know, I have a responsibility to all these parents. What would I get from putting you in this chair because you're black? I mean, he, he understood that I was sort of this mm-hmm. logical kid and I didn't really have an answer for him. He said, you're in that chair, not because you're black, but because you're the second you earned it. What I find fascinating about this is if that was the like rationale of the reasoning that you had in your mind, say today, I would like get it right. Because people do things for press and cloud and recognition. And it's like black student thrives as X and X musician, right? But we're talking about a time frame where they were not interested in propping us up in that way. So what made you come to that conclusion? I can only imagine that I was still getting messages that any kind of quote unquote exceptionalism that you observe Mm -hmm. by Black people or women, et cetera, et cetera, was a pass. It was a, you know, it wasn't, they weren't, it wasn't that they were really exceptional. It was that it, the society had decided to make them the first or mm-hmm. the only or the last. And I had and I think it was the consequence of having been that in my life up to that point that I must be here because, you know, and it was and and I hadn't and I and it was that day that that changed. Wow. Yeah. So did you take that role after that conversation? Did you really take that role by the horns and say, OK, I'm going to try to thrive here? Yeah. Because I loved, because I played the violin because I loved the violin. Mm -hmm. You know, that was, that was really the only reason. Like it wasn't, I wasn't trying to prove anything. I just loved doing it and I didn't, and it wasn't a big deal to me. And, you know, I just wanted to keep doing it. So that was it. And that was why I didn't want to become a concert violinist because I just, it was, you know, you ride a bike every day doesn't mean you want to become a cyclist. (laughs) You know, you cook breakfast every day doesn't mean you want to become a chef. (laughs) 
So that was that was that was it. But but I had somehow the social imprinting was messaging was that if you do anything that feels exceptional there, then, then you know, there's some tokenism that's involved. Right. In that, rather than, you know, you're just exceptional in this part of your life. And we all are all exceptional in some way. Absolutely. So you had the violin and your work with this orchestra, um, excelling in school academically, but in, in high school dealing with some challenges um, post roots on television. Did that affect your grades? Not in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it didn't. It didn't. Um, except the, it, it affected my relationship with my parents because I became militant mm. and I did not want to go to school in Delaware. I wanted to go to either Howard or Morehouse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my father, being from the South, was like, nope, no, only child of mine is going to go to school in Georgia. Absolutely not. Ain't going to happen. And that was the first time we really clashed. Because mm-hmm. I was like, you don't get to determine. He was like, yes, I do. <laughs> He's like, actually, it is my decision. I determine everything. <laughs> what you eat, what time you get up, what time you go to bed, you're under my roof. And I was like, so they wanted me. So I started college early. So I started mm-hmm. at 16. So they insisted that I go to the University of Delaware because it was right down the road. And they insisted that I commute from home. Wow. And so I went down there. I got great grades the first semester. I came back home. I threw the grades on the table. I said, if you all want me to go back, then I'm going to go. I'm leaving. I'm moving out of this house. Otherwise, I'm not going back. Had you even <laughs> turned 17 yet? I think I had just turned, just turned 17. 17. Yeah. And so then they were like, okay, you know, <laughs> and so I went on campus. And that's when the activism began. Got it. So what, is, what does activism look like for a 17-year-old? Well, a 17-year-old with a mini Afro and a, who wore daishikis and army boots and fatigue pants. <laughs> and the rumor came out that I was Idi Amin Dada's nephew. <laughs> Where did that come from? I don't know who started that, but that was the rumor at the University of Delaware at that time. And then I and my best friend who was on my pledge line, because we also, I started the chapter of Alphas at the University of Delaware. Oh, back wow. In the day. So, so that was a whole nother thing too. Like black led, black Greek letter mm-hmm. fraternities and sororities on the campus were in and of themselves, uh, a radical act at that time uh, for many people. And, um, and they were, and so we, so that starting that became problematic with my professors who didn't like the pledge experience and the pledge process, who would make unsolicited and uninvited commentary mm-hmm. to which I would have to respond. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, know? you responded really? Like yeah. I haven't even known you that long. And I, and I know that you responded, <laughs> you know, and, and, and my response was always in writing, which mm-hmm. made it really stick, <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Versus in words. Cause you can't argue with words. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and then just random stuff would happen. Like one day I was coming home and I was talking to an insurance agent who my parents, because, you know, old black folks are into insurance, yes. you know, yes. so they had an insurance policy out and they had the insurance agent come talk to me about blah, blah, blah. And we were walking across the campus and the, the white fraternity house was playing a song called Nigger Go Home. Wow. In the window. And the agent, I didn't even hear it. And the agent heard it first and I saw his like I saw him become affected. He turned red. And that was when I heard it. So I wrote a letter, demanded a public apology, you know, took it to the president's office. So and what next, year was this? 1979. Mm-hmm. And then that became a big deal. And um, then we, then I became vice president of the Black Student Union. Then we did the March on Washington. It just sort of, you know, those things just sort of, you know, then it was the Million Man March. These things just sort of happened. Mm-hmm. You, you know, because you're black, like, right. it was that was part of my experience and all the kids that I had grown up with, you know, going to church with, which was where my social circle was. And the, when they showed up on college campus and they were white, they didn't know how to speak to me. Mm. All of a sudden I was, you know, no longer Toby Tompkins, who they had, you know, summer camp with. I was that black guy over there. Right. And that was difficult to sort of reconcile. But it sounds like you found your village mm-hmm. outside of. um who you might have gone to school with or fraternized with before before college. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, my village expands and contracts and changes, at, you know, at, at various stages of my life. But but then there in that there are people from each village experience that become part of my village. Mm-hmm. That core nucleus. Over, yeah, over life, you know, so I can look back over my life and 
with each sort of innovation of Toby, mm -hmm. there are people who can talk about, yeah, I remember you back when, you know, <laughs> and then there are people who can imagine me, only know me as Toby with locks. And mm -hmm. there are people who can't imagine me with locks, and, you know. And so, yeah, that's, I think that's the, the life for most of us, mm -hmm. um, you know. So do you think as you got deeper and deeper into activism in college that your career asp aspirations change? I never felt like I could just go for the money. Mm. Um, I was supposed to be a lawyer. And, and when I finished undergrad um, and it was time to apply to law school, it was me and my best friend, Kevin. We were all applying to law school. I could never answer the question. Well, my answer to the question, why do you want to be a lawyer, was it would make my parents proud. Mm. And I knew that was the wrong answer. Like, I, I just knew that was the wrong answer. And I never felt like I could defend someone who I felt was guilty. And a lawyer needs to be able to defend everyone. And so that was a, a, a issue for me. You know, you're naive. You don't know. But that was how I felt. So those were the two reasons why I decided to go to graduate school instead of, you know, and I wanted to get out of Delaware. So I um, had two choices. I had a full scholarship to University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Mm -hmm. So I already had my own issues about going to the South. Right. And I knew that wasn't going to happen. And then University of Hartford in, in West Hartford, Connecticut. So I went to Connecticut. And what'd you get a master's in? Public administration finance. Wow. So um, you go get a master's in Connecticut, which, I mean, I've been to Hartford. I don't know what it, what the demographic was at that time. Whole but... black folks mm -hmm. and rich white Jewish people. Sounds like the same. <laughs> <laughs> like it hasn't changed that much. No, it hasn't changed. Hartford is like Camden. Mm -hmm. It hasn't changed. So what was your experience there? Did it differ from your experience in Delaware? Um, most of my friends and experiences in graduate school, that was kind of when my global consciousness began mm. to emerge because my friends were brown people from other places. So, you know, I befriended these two sisters, um, Shilaka Kalimutu, Sheila, and, um, and they were Malays. Mm -hmm. young Malay women who were totally into Jamaican culture. <laughs> yeah, That's an interesting crazy. combination. It was crazy, yeah. yeah. And um, and so all of a sudden, my, like, I had a different, it was a different experience. Mm -hmm. And and um, I was a Black American guy, but it wasn't that, it wasn't in the way that, you know. So so graduate school was, was good in that I began to look at myself as a global citizen. Mm -hmm. And um, and that, that happened there. Um, I didn't have to deal with the, you know, graduate school is different. I mean, you know, you're, you're in it to get the degree. Right. And, and you're in a small group of people and you move forward. So, so yeah, so it was, it was good. And then, you know, then I went into the workplace and I, and um, I took my first job with Arthur Anderson, which was mm. now Accenture. Which is, which is interesting because based on who you, how you described yourself up until this point, I did not expect you to say that you ended up at Arthur Anderson. I was looking for a job. <laughs> <laughs> And I carried my resume with me everywhere. And mm -hmm. at the time I was working, I was finishing up my degree and I had a part-time job at Ajax Car Rental, someplace in like Farmington, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And this guy walked in and, you know, I had to take all of his information down. And on his, somewhere on his card, it said that he went to University of Michigan and had an MPA degree. And I said, well, I have the same thing. And he says, really? And I said, yeah. And I said, what do you do? He says, I work for Arthur Anderson. So I said, oh, well, I'm looking for a job. He says, well, give me your resume. And I pulled, went right to my thing and pulled it out and put it there. And I was the first black male hired into Arthur Anderson. So you literally have just integrated your entire life. Like, I couldn't help it. Yeah. And there was one black woman who was there. Uh, we're still dear friends. We were the only two black folk in the Hartford office of Arthur Anderson at the time. And once again, what got me in was that I had done a summer internship and I knew the mayor. The mayor was mm. black. And they needed mm -hmm. they needed some color to get those contracts. Right. So there's always that backstory. Like, you you know, you thinking you don't even know all the things that people are looking for when they look at you. Mm -hmm. So I was there and um, I'll never forget. Probably the biggest experience there was the the um, managing partner, Roger Gelfenbein. I'm giving names. You, you, you remember names you very forget. well. <laughs> you know, these are people who shape you. Yeah. And they brought me into his office one day and he said, uh, we need some folks more like you. Can you bring you have any of your friends looking for a job? I said, oh, you all need some black people? <laughs> okay. Oh and I was like, bap, 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 bap. And I got four of my friends' jobs at Arthur Anderson. Um, and then one day he pulls me back in and he says, we don't need any more. <laughs> He's like, all right, easy peasy. Right, easy peasy. <laughs> like, you you messing up the conversation. <laughs> so I was like, well, when you all need some more qualified, overly qualified black people, fine. We then formed what we called ourselves the Black Eight. 
There's eight of us. Mm -hmm. Because we knew that at that time, there had never been a manager, a black manager in the Hartford office. And we knew that we weren't all going to make it. Right. So we figured that one of us was. And everybody else was intentional, going to be intentional about what this experience at Arthur Anderson was going to mean for them. And one of them went on and went into becoming a TV producer. I packed up and left and went into corporate America. And another person um, went into healthcare. And then one person stayed there and became the manager, Black female. And what, for people who don't understand, like, consulting firms and the culture, it's basically a pyramid. Like, it's not like, oh, we're, we're just going to promote all of you. You all do well. We're going to promote you. The higher up you get, it's sort of... It's a club. Yeah, it's a club, right? And And it's very rare that we reach certain levels of success. And to think about the time period, too, I'm sure it's Early even 80s. worse. Yeah, back then. 84. Yeah, um, it was. Mm-hmm. And they, they, the mistake they made was they packed me up in 1985 and moved me to Chicago. Mm. <laughs> that was like Ebony. <laughs> Harold Washington was mayor. You know, that was when I became a buppy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you know what a buppy Oh, was, black urban professional. Black urban professional. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. I, mean, I feel was, like you really embraced the buppy I culture. the buppy. <laughs> oh, it was terrible. I, I'm not really proud of that moment. <laughs> but all my capitalist urges came out. Mm-hmm. But, but it was the first time I was ever in a community of, quote unquote, black, upwardly mobile urban mm-hmm. professionals. I always like. I have this conversation with other Black professionals where, like, you know, like, you're doing all right for yourself and you feel like you're integrating. And then you meet these Black folks who, like, vacation on the vineyard. Like, all this stuff. Right. And I'm thinking... what the vineyard was. Yeah, like, where then. where have I been? Right? right? It's this whole other life. And it does suck you in, in a way. It pulls you in. That's when I learned about the boulets mm-hmm. and the, the Jack and Jill and all that sort of stuff. Um, but the difference in that time is that I'm a Black gay man. Mm-hmm. And so all of the very talented... Black, many of the Black people I knew um, at that time were also very talented, Harvard, Yale, medical doctors, et cetera, et cetera. And this was at the height of HIV. Mm -hmm. And so I would go, literally, it got to the point where I would go to a party and the room would be filled. Imagine I'm sitting here, there are five people in this room and the next party, one's gone. Wow. Because back then, AIDS took you out. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, you know... Like you catch pneumonia and you're gone. You would, mm-hmm. No one even knew that you, maybe you didn't even know. And and so at the time, I also went to Trinity, which mm-hmm. I don't know if you know, Trinity was the church yeah. of Barack Obama mm-hmm. and Michelle, but it was also the church of Reverend Jeremiah Wright. Mm-hmm. So I was there in the congregation. I did not know the Obamas. They did not know me, mm-hmm. as far as I know, but we all knew Reverend Wright. And Reverend Wright was um, a real savior mm-hmm. because he would officiate over the, funerals of these young, talented, gifted black gay men Really, while we all stood in the room, terrified, traumatized, and in the closet. That was going to be my question. Were you out or was this a secret at the time? It was a secret. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was, you know, I mean, you know, it was a secret. It wasn't like, you know, and we had a, we, there were things we had to do, you know, I mean, there were, you know, very quote unquote, beautiful, professional African-American women who were lesbians. So we, everybody paired up to be the, you know, because we, you had to have, you had to show up a certain way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then I also, because of my activism, did volunteer work in the LGBT community in Chicago. And um, that turned into, um, that was my work that I did because I cared. And then, but someone in, in high up in the company at that time found out mm-hmm. and tried to out me. Really? So I went in to quit. I went to my boss and I said, look, I got to quit. And he was like, why? I said, because I just can't do this anymore. And I was the chief. This time I was at a large healthcare company. I was the first global diversity officer. And this person was trying to push the issue of LGBTQ inclusion on the table um, because they were in the closet and they were trying to sacrifice me as the person. And I was like, I, I didn't sign on for this. Like, I'm not going to embarrass my parents and, you know, mm-hmm. blah, 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 blah. I'm not doing that. So I, I, I went into my boss and I said, I quit. Now, my boss who recruited me is the only African-American male I have ever reported into in my whole career. And I'm surprised you even had that one. You he, know. Was, he, other than my father, has had the greatest influence on me. Mm-hmm. Like he growed me up. Mm-hmm. Like he told me he bought he, he defined my bougie. You know, he <laughs> did. But in a good way, like he told me, I'll never forget. He told me um, he gave me a card. And he said, now, when you go to New York, I want you to go to this store. 
I want you to have them take your measurements and you order your shirts from here. I knew there was going to be like a tailored shirt or suit somewhere in this conversation. <laughs> he, that store was called Paul Stewart. Mm-hmm. He, when my Chevy Corsica got in an accident because <laughs> it was paid for and everybody was laughing. I was like, look, my car's paid for. Of course, my boss drove to work in a Porsche. I had never met a black man who owned a Porsche. And I loved that Porsche, you know. And he was looked so cool driving to school in that Porsche, I mean, to work. He gave me a card and said, I want you to go out to Barrington, Illinois, which is a place where black people should not be going alone, then talk to this guy. And that's how I got my first Mercedes. Do you know what I'm you saying? You really were living like the I was living at 30 life. years old. My goal was to be one of the... Ebony Magazine used to do an issue every year, and this was my goal, Mm -hmm. of Blacks under 30 making $100,000 a year or more. Now, today, that would be, like, laughable, right? (laughs) Right. But But back back then, then, that was, like— That's a big deal. That was a big deal. And my goal was to be that. And I was. I had made it. I was making $100,000 a year at 30, driving a Mercedes. I was living in a house in in the suburbs of Evanston. Mm -hmm. I was that guy. And and I had this boss— and. You know, it was it was great. So when they tried to blackmail me, you know, I, all of that was at stake, mm-hmm. you know, and and I was like, you know, I'd rather quit than be taken down, taken out like that. So so my boss said, why are you doing this? I said, I can't tell you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said, what do you mean you can't tell me? I said, I just need to quit. I, I can't do this. He says, Toby, there isn't anything you can't tell me that I don't already know. Mm-hmm. To which my response was, what you talking about? Willis? <laughs> <laughs> and I told him. And I was terrified because mm-hmm. I, I, I told him expecting that he would be like, yeah, you need to quit. Like, I thought that was what he right. was going to say. And he said, you know what I think? And I said, no. He said, I think you're the most courageous man I've ever met. Mm-hmm. I'm like, really? And I was crying in his office. And then he said to me in a way that, you know how when somebody's about to do something and you don't want to know? Yes. <laughs> he said, you want me to make this go away? <laughs> <laughs> Like, and I'm like, what you going to do? Like, what are the details of making it going away? So I, I, I said, and I was worried because I didn't want him to get, like, this wasn't his fight. I said, let me go talk to Reverend Wright. Now, Reverend Wright was probably not, you know, I went to Reverend Wright and I told him what was going on. And he had been up because I had brought him up to, to mm-hmm. Baxter, who was the name of the company, to do this work. And Reverend Wright said, Toby, I stopped educating white people a long time ago. Mm. So these men and these women like showed up in my life in these ways that just sort of like fundamentally rerouted my journey, like in in ways that, you know, they just did. Mm -hmm. They just did these one little one sentence just kind of hit you in a way like, oh, you know, (laughs) I'm doing this. I'm supposed to be doing something else. And that's. I, that has happened even to this day. It still happens. And I, I just expect it now. I'm just open to it. But back then it was profound. You know, it's it was guided. You know, there was a there was some there was a guiding hand in that. And I really have felt that. And I've tried to be that in other people's lives. Right. Like you learn that we can all be that sort of force through our wisdom. We may not always have the Rolodex or the checkbook, but we can by giving people our attention and our time and our affection be just as powerful, more powerful mm-hmm. than that. So, yeah. So did you decide to make the move still after that conversation? I um, I was very much in demand. There were a lot of people who wanted, you know, to have me on their team. So I, t- I moved to um, Amoco Oil. Mm-hmm. Amoco, I haven't Amico heard Amoco, Amico, Amico, Amico 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 Oil in a long time. Right. And um, I was a director of culture and, I forget, culture and diversity. And um, I got in there and I was like, oh, what have I done? Because mm-hmm. that was oil and gas, and it just doesn't get much dirtier than that. Right. And a year in, um, I couldn't take it, and I quit. Um, and I decided I was 35, mm-hmm. and I was trying to decide whether to become a parent or not, because I wanted to be a parent, mm-hmm. but I didn't want to be a single parent. I had two elderly parents, and I didn't know how to, I didn't want to, like, I knew that if something happened to me as a single parent, if I adopted, that there wouldn't be anyone to sort of, there's no safety net. Like, right. there wasn't anybody in my family. I wanted to raise my child. So so I had a big conversation. And I was there was a pressure of me expecting that I should produce a child mm-hmm. because, you know. So I had to sit down and have a conversation with my mom in particular. And she was like, look, you don't need to have a child because of me. And um, so then I was like, fine. So then I quit my job and I moved to Florida. And I um, became a writer. And I grew dreadlocks. And I practiced Hinduism. And I just went on this sort of wild journey. <laughs> so wait, so you went from sort of black bourgeoisie and, you know, it's I read a book. Um, it was Elon Harris's memoir that came mm-hmm. out 
I think it came out posthumously, mm-hmm. but he sort of talked about this life and the dinner parties and the mm-hmm. clothes and mm-hmm. the vacations and the cars it's, and all this stuff. It's real. Um, you don't often hear, though, of people giving it all up to grow their hair out and write. <laughs> so, but it's not it's not like you you know that that's what you're mm-hmm. doing. Like, I knew I wanted to write. Um, and this was when Dr. Phil was coming on mm-hmm. the scene. And I wanted to write about, the, I had a, my first book was called The Success Trap. And it was about the ways in which success traps you. And I couldn't get a book deal because everybody's like, but you're no Dr. Phil. I'm like, that's why you should publish me because mm-hmm. I'm not Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil hasn't worked a day in corporate America. I have, but they weren't interested in what a black man had to say about corporate America. They were only interested in what black people had to say about being black. Right. So that was, you know, six years it took me to get a book deal. And it ultimately ended up being about black women. And even then they were like, but and the only reason I got that deal after having been rejected and rejected and rejected was because the the last publisher said to me, well, you know, this is more like a bell hooks book. And I turned to him because I was kind of sick and tired of it all. And I said, let me ask you a question. He says, what? I said, where did you come from? And he said, what do you mean? I said, what did you come from? What did you come through? He said, like he didn't understand. I said, you came through your mother. Well, didn't you? He said, yeah. I said, and what was she? And he sort of began to get get where Mm -hmm. I was going to. I said, that's right. I came through a strong black woman. Mm -hmm. I know implicitly, and I have been an observer and a concerned, unloving observer of black women my entire life. And you're going to sit here and tell me that they don't care about what I see and what I feel. And I got a two book deal. (laughs) Wow. But that took six years, six years. So when you left and you moved to Florida, what did that look like for you financially? Because I think a lot of folks, and I talk to Black people all the time who are like, I'm ready to get out of this corporate thing, but the money, I don't, I don't know how to make this work. Well, back then, um, I, a, I had money saved because mm-hmm. I was you know, making 100 Gs and I had contracts. I was consulting. Okay. So I, I, my goal was to move to Miami and not work a day. And I refused to take client work in Florida. Mm-hmm. So I would always fly out and I did that. So I was making money and everything was going fine until 9-11. Mm-hmm. And then as a consultant, everything stopped Dried because up. the world shut down and you couldn't get. So everything got frozen. And at that time I was balling. I mean, I had a 4,000 square foot penthouse mm-hmm. over the bay. I was deep into the local, you know, the Caribbean arts mm-hmm. community. I was throwing parties. I was, you know, just I feel doing... like I have a vision of you. It back was, then it was fun. Night. I'm not going to lie. It was anybody, you know, I would throw these fabulous Thanksgiving dinners that mm-hmm. would be like three days of cooking. People would fly in. I had two big bouviers walking around. I had Haitian voodoo drummers drumming in the at parties. It was great. It was great. You know, black gay man knows how to throw a party. I'm just going to lie, but it's true. And it was fun, but it wasn't as, as bougie as it was. It wasn't, if that makes sense, you know, because you had everybody there and it was always that. And, um, and it was fun. It was fun. I have no, no regrets about that moment of my life. And yeah, I welcome that. Mm-hmm. You know. So the work dried up after 9-11. Then I moved to New York. A very expensive city. What, what drove you to come to New York? Because I realized that I was in Miami having a great time, but I had not finished what I came there to start, which mm-hmm. was to get a book contract. Okay. And then I had to wake up and go, okay, so the center of the publishing universe is not South Beach. Mm-hmm. True. <laughs> it's New York City. So I moved up, slept on a friend's sofa, and um, said I was only going to stay there for a year, get a book deal, and then go back to mm-hmm. Miami. It didn't happen. I ended up being in and out of New York now almost 20 years. Um, and I, until I, I packed up, came to New York, got the book deal within three months. Book came out in 2004, the first one. Second one, which was A Real Lives of Strong Black Men, was due to come out in 2007. And then I was going to move to Cape Town and do some work with, um, with the BBE board mm-hmm. members in the mining sector. And in the midst of that, while traveling on a client trip, I had um, a bilateral pulmonary embolism. Oh, wow. Ended up on my feet for, off my feet for six months and then in recovery for a year. So at that point, my whole life changed. Like everything was like, you're not going to be able to travel. You can forget about moving to Africa. Every life as you know it, your big shot consultant days that you can't do that. Mm -hmm. So I really was, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do. And um, a year later, as I was recovering, I got a call from a friend who said, they're looking for someone to take over this project in, in Africa, and I think you'd be great for it. And I said, what? And he said, well, it's a responsible mining project in, in Ghana, and you would be working with the two largest mining companies and the local communities to identify and help reverse the consequences of surface mining in the mm-hmm. local communities. I'm like, Ghana? that's not Cape Town that's like a real deal do they have power they have electric they were like sometimes (laughs) so I went for the interview 
um, in North Carolina, and I have no background in international development. I had never been on the African continent. You know, I'd never gotten a yellow fever shot, mm -hmm. any of the things you have to do. And I didn't know nothing about international development. And I had to present and answer the question, why, what, what needs to change in the internet, in the, in international development in order for it to have a greater impact in Africa? So don't ask me where this came from, but my, I took one page, I took a PowerPoint page, I grabbed an image of a chicken with lips. <laughs> what? <laughs> a chicken. You can Google it right now. There, there are pictures out there with chickens with lips right? It's a photo touch up, mm -hmm. right? Chicken with lips. And I took that. That was my, that was my presentation. So we get there. I'm in front of all these white people who are looking at me. They don't know me from a can of paint, right? They had never had a black chief of party in this role. Mm -hmm. I'm totally not their typical hire. And I hold up this screen and I said, this is my presentation. I said, and this is international development from the eyes of a local villager. And then I held up the image of the chicken with lips and they're looking at each other like, so let me tell you how this, anyone know how this chicken got lips? And they were like, we have no idea. I said, so the U.S. government issued a contract to go in and help save chickens in local mining villages. <laughs> and they said, really? I said, yeah. I said, and so they amassed a team of the top talent of, of international development people, sent them to this village. And what the village, what their assessment of the village of the local chickens was is, gee, their diet is limited to grains. And if we could just give them lips, they could eat so many other things that are, you know, natural to indigenous to the local community, which would provide all kinds of nourishment for them. So they came up with a technology to turn their beaks into lips. And now the chickens have lips and they got it. <laughs> they were like, oh, my God, we do that, don't we? I said, uh-huh. Yeah. I said, you do it every time you put water into a village. And you then tell the villagers that they have to pay for that water because mm -hmm. it's being pumped in rather than sending their chick children to the river every day so that the mothers can have a break from parenting. I said, you do that. You determine for them what better is mm. rather than listening to them. I said, if you want me to do this job, there will be no chickens with lips. Wow. I got hired. <laughs> a month later, I was in Ghana. That, that's a risky pitch. <laughs> what did I have to lose? <laughs> I mean, I risked dying because my doctor said, well, I wouldn't fly more than 10 hours and the flight from JFK to Accra was nine. Mm. So I was like, well, I hope we don't get caught up in turbulence. <laughs> so I made it. So how long were you in Ghana? Two years. Two years. Yep. And then my dad died. Mm -hmm. So I had to come back. And um, I had an adopted brother who we're not that close, who had um, done some time mm -hmm. for a crime. And um, so that was difficult because what he did was, you know, really embarrassed the family's mm -hmm. name and all that sort of stuff. And then so when my father died, um, I just sort of felt like an orphan because now both of my parents are gone. So I had then had to decide, well, do I stay in the U.S. or in New York or do I go back? And so I was really ready to just go back to Africa and, and pick up. But everything that was coming to me as a ne next project were, were in war zones. And I'm mm. like, I'm not doing war zones. No Afghanistans, no Uzbekistan, right. no stands. I'm not doing that. So I ended up staying in New York and I realized, well, while I figure this out, what do I want to do? And I had done, you know, leadership development work my whole career and coaching work. And I decided that I wanted to work with these social justice activists because mm -hmm. as my book had been out, I would meet a lot of women who were doing activist work who could resonate with the themes of the book. Sure. And I realized nobody's like, they don't have any support. So I reached out to five people in New York who were, work, who were working in social justice. And I said, introduce me to three people who you know, who need coaching, but can't afford it. Mm. And they did. And next thing I know, I'm in, you know. And so I started doing that, which led me into um, philanthropy. And then I ended up joining a large progressive San Francisco-based firm, Foundation, and ran the New York office and built out um, Black-led endowed philanthropies in Brazil, Colombia, East Africa, stuff like that. Did that for five years. And then I left, and that was in 2016. And I received a fellowship to go to Italy by the Rockefeller Foundation and work on a book that I had been working on called Beautiful Leadership. Mm. Beautiful Leadership was the result of me studying the recurring traits of high-performing, high-social impact leaders from across the global South. And I said, we need to have a different lens on leadership other than sort of the post-colonial Stephen Covey seven habits right. of highly effective people kind of work. And um, when I presented my first couple of chapters to my cohort, 
they said, we love this, but you need to bring this book to life. And I said, well, what do you mean? They said, well, you want to help young emerging, you know, people, leaders from the global South. They don't speak English and they don't read books. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's when I realized that I had to take that somehow and put it into a phone because I'd been all over lots of remote places right. and they all have a phone. Mm -hmm. And that's what's led me to today is the creation of um, this tech platform that I'll be basing in Portugal, uh, which is sim symbolic, right? The mm -hmm. in the home of slavery um, that will be for, um, it's a social learning platform that crowdsources wisdom in the form of podcasts based upon the challenges that we face in our personal and professional lives. And so it'll capture local, culturally relevant content. It eventually we'll be able to do it in and across languages. Mm. Um, it has a whole deep learning, machine learning background to it to be able to interpret and extract critical human attributes and emotions. And it'll be used as a personal and professional development tool that will give you a sort of memory of the challenges that you faced in your life in, and in the various parts of your life that will be your sort of wisdom record. Memory to me is important because the logo is an elephant of company, mm. Safio is name. And when you bring together a group of elephants, they're called a memory. Mm. So they're not, a, they're not a tribe or a herd, they're a memory. And so I like that because I love elephants and yes. I love what they represent and, and all that. So that's what I'm doing and um, now. And I've pulled together a team. I've been working on this for a couple of years now. And I then got into an incubator in Portugal and I'm moving to Portugal and I have a global team, which is why I was on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. And um, we're going to launch this in about five months. So one thing I do find interesting about your story is that you seem like one of those people, like you have an idea, you'll pick up the phone, utilize your network, figure it out and bring it to life. Um, but when we're talking about platforms and applications of those things, a lot of people, particularly people who look like us, um, often are intimidated by the technology piece because they can't do Very it. Intimidating. Yeah, they don't have the network. They don't have the money. So how did you attack that part of it? I didn't. I'm not a techie mm -hmm. and I have no money. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's not easy. I'm, I, I've been saying for the past three years now since I've been working on this that I'm not a tech founder. And a couple weeks ago, a friend of mine said, Toby, you sound pretty technical to me right now. You're talking about platforms and this and that and AI and blah, blah, blah. And I, all, I guess all I can say is that there's nothing that stops you from learning except mm -hmm. you. And, um, and so I've had to learn. Um, I, I, it's been a steep and nonstop learning curve. Um, I've had to learn. I've had to earn. I've had to network. And you're going to make a lot. You know, I've, I've had to change out my team. A lot of people are interested in the idea yes. and the blitz. But then when you bring them on and you say, okay, so do this or you deliver that, they don't deliver. So you got to learn to fire fast. Mm -hmm. um, and they come in all colors, by the way. Let me just add, and you know, this is just, you know, everybody will promise and not deliver. Right. So you have to learn who, who delivers. Um, and most importantly, you can't quit. Mm -hmm. You just cannot quit. You cannot say, oh, you can't have a plan B. Yeah. You know, plan, I've, I've, plan Bs are nice when you, you know, when what you're doing doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. But if what you're doing really matters, if it, if it only happens because you're doing it, then you don't have a, what do you need a plan B for? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. there's no plan B. This is going to happen come hell or high water. The opposite of plan B is hell or high water. So I'm plan A come hell or high water. Mm -hmm. It's just that. When I decided to write a book, it was write or die. That was the most, that was the motto in my head, you know? So to me, it was when I decided to move to Africa, it was Africa or Mars. <laughs> I was wow. like, Africa is easier than Mars. I'll start with Africa mm -hmm. first. And somehow you get that kind of, you get to that place inside of you and it doesn't matter whether tomorrow you run into an ocean or a bridge. It's like, I'm getting over it. <laughs> and, and I feel like when you have that level of focus, it's easier to let people go who well, are just not aligned as it's well. It's necessary. You know, and it and I, I have found even with this show and all the things that DeMarcus and I do, because we're so committed, when someone else doesn't get it, I don't feel like I need to take the time to explain it and try to help you get it. Like, you're just not the one to come alongside in this vision. And that's OK. Let's just keep it moving. But there's a downside. Mm -hmm. Like it's the downside is, is and I don't think we talk about this enough is that I get the whole notion of it being lonely. Mm -hmm. Like if you're a creative and you're a generative person in the world, that is in most cases a solo journey. It's very isolating, yes. It's very isolating. It's hard to find a partner who 
who gets it wants to go along with you or is going down their own road so mm-hmm. they understand it. Your friends like it at first and then they start nodding. And then after that, they're like, yeah, well, you know, he's doing whatever that is. His little thing, his little you, thing know. you know. And then to, until you write, until you throw the party. And right. then all of a sudden, like, yeah, I knew you were going to do it. You need five stars and then look at my Instagram, buddy. And it takes so long. It takes so long. And, you know, if you know anything about startup culture, mm. The runway, you, you know, it's going to take some years, right? But people who are not in it, as you mentioned, to your point, they're like, oh, this hasn't happened yet. Like, are you still even working on this? They don't understand the concept of stealth mode. And, you know, you've got to go through proof of concept and all this other stuff. And I love how, like, the mm-hmm. startup gurus will be like, well, the first thing you do is you just go out and raise, like, $250,000 from your family and your friends. <laughs> yes, the family and friends around. I'm like, like who's family? Are you? Yeah, that's not happening over here. Please. Like, $250,000 from whose bank <laughs> are we going to break into? So th- that stuff just doesn't apply. Right. It just doesn't apply, you know? And nobody's daddy's writing a check for $250. Not happening. <laughs> it's not happening. So you got to raise it and you got to still pay your rent and you got to still help everybody else yeah. and pay school fees and all the other. You got to do all that stuff because you can't have your dream and not take care of my problems. You right. Know what I mean? Exactly. So you, you just you do it and it gets hard and you want to give up. But what else are you going to do? Mm-hmm. So that's a great segue. Tell me about the time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Happened just this last week. Mm. Um, when you're trying to be extraordinary and people get threatened by it, or when you are extraordinary and people are threatened by that, you have to negotiate Mm -hmm. your own terms for entry and exit. Um, Last week, I went back to an employer that my last employer, I hadn't been there since 2015. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I was the number two person in the organization and the Black people there were, it was like a homecoming, you know, that felt good. There with a client um, who was a Black-led organization, mm-hmm. you know, and then there were the and the only two people who were left in the organization, like everybody else that I work with, were the two women for whom that represented the greatest challenges for me. Um, and I ran into both of them. Mm-hmm. And um, one in particular who, what's the word I'm looking for, who just looked me in the face and said, I know you are the right person for this, but I'm going to give this to this white Mm -hmm. woman. I'm not giving it to you, even though I know, and you know, I know, and I know, you know, you know, I know. I'm not going to do the right thing. Um, Embrace me. And so sometimes the extraordinary thing you have to do is walk out, is to hold on to your humility. Yeah. And, you know, it's that scene that I love in um, the movie with, Angela Bassett and the fire where she throws a match. Waiting to exhale. Waiting to mm-hmm. exhale. Everybody has had that, like, that's justice, right? <laughs> like burn it all down. Just burn yes. it down. Excuse, um, <laughs> excuse me, you can bleep that out. We, we'll mute it later. It's right. okay. Um, but what would it mean to just do what Whitney did, which is I'm going to go out and get milk. I'm out. <laughs> you know, like, like it is, you don't always have to do that mm-hmm. because you never know how the story's going. And when you do it that way, you end the story. Right. But when you don't, you never know how the story is going to end. And, and what I have learned in life is that when people do you wrong and you walk away with your dignity and your humility and you're still the better person, you're the extraordinary being, even though you know they're doing you wrong and they know they did you wrong, that they come around. It may not be today or tomorrow, mm-hmm. but they do come back around if they live long enough because, you know, <laughs> things do happen to people. Mm-hmm. And they realize and they're apologetic for what they for who they were back then. It doesn't mean that they're any better. Right. And it doesn't mean that they're going to correct what they did. But there's just, there's a justice. There's a balancing out. And so that's what happened to me last week. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I was able to, what, what the value of that was that I was able to be there after not having been there and walk through that place. And it was really emotional. And I said, what if I had stayed? Like, I didn't have to leave. I could have stayed. But what if my life hadn't happened the way it's happened over these And I was still here doing everything, you know, because it was comfortable and cushy and beautiful, but it was so empty. But I think that takes courage. That that story happens to so many of us. And you might be upset for a day or two or, you know, or, or, you know, you might stew for a few weeks or a few months, but often people swallow that to say, I'm just going to stay. It's like better the devil, you know, that that sort of thing. I I never believed that. Mm -mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Because the devil you know knows you. Right. And that's why you can't stay. The devil you don't know don't know you. So you can outdo that devil. <laughs> I like that. But the devil you know knows you. That's so true. So you got to leave that devil alone. You're staying in that devil's game. Mm -hmm. mm -mm, I don't stay in the devil's game. I hear you there. I'm with you. That That's more my speed. Um, But you're a podcast host as well? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, weirdly enough, um, I... So like I told you my big thing mm -hmm. is about completion. I believe you always start with you finish what you start. So since I never published this Realize a Strong Black Men book, it occurred to me after when I went and saw Harriet, I woke up a couple of days later and I was like, oh, this is how I can finish it. So I, I took the I revisited the manuscript and I reached out to some of the people who I had initially interviewed mm -hmm. and a whole lot of other people. And I started a podcast that is basically just a conversation between me and the black men that I know mm -hmm. about what is their real live realities as black men in the world today. So um, it's, I think we've got, we're like six episodes in. I publish it every two weeks, one, mm -hmm. one tw twice a month. Um, the last one just came out, I think yesterday. It's about a young brother who uh, served time in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Once again, came up from the South, lives in New York. We met at Starbucks um, and he's had to struggle with mental health issues. And, you know, he's written a memoir called The War Within. Mm. And he's going to be publishing that. And so we just talk about what it means. You know, it's about how you negotiate the gap between being being your image, the, the, the image that society thrusts upon you or that you must present to society in order to be safe and mm -hmm. whole and your identity. The you, you know, your we know ourselves to be as black men. That's awesome. Yeah. So what does the future look like for you? Because I feel like you have like 10 more chapters to write in this life story. I don't know. Um, <laughs> The future looks bright. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'm very excited. I'm moving to Portugal. I'm going to live in Lisbon. I'm going to base the company there. Um, and um, that's going to be a challenge. Sure. You know, I've got to learn a new language and all that. Um, I have a relationship that with someone who lives in another country. So mm -hmm. we'll be building a family there. There's a, wow. so that's going to be interesting. I'll be co-parenting. <laughs> that's going to be interesting. Um, all of the things that I actually didn't think were possible and that I long time sort of stopped expecting to happen mm -hmm. seem to be coming around now, which is also interesting, yeah. you know, 25 years later. But um, I'm open. I'm open to it all. And all I'm really trying to do is take care of my spirit and my body and my mind mm -hmm. in the process. I don't, I'm not really worried about, about the rest of it. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, listen, I'm looking forward to Safio. Thank you. That's going to be great. You come visit me in Portugal. I mean, well, I'm always about jumping <laughs> on a flight. So that goes without saying. Um, but where can people find you and your collateral and what you have out there in the world right now? So, well, the company, mm -hmm. when Safio launches, there will be a free version of the platform. Mm -hmm. So I would encourage um, everyone to do that. If you go to the website now, um, www.safio.com, you can enter in your email address and we'll we'll let you know when it launches. So that's one place mm -hmm. where you can, you know, be connected. My personal website is tobytompkins.com. So if you want to look at my writings and readings and all that stuff, you can go there. Um, and then the podcast is The Real Lives of Strong Black Men. Mm -hmm. So it's on all the platforms, Anchor, uh, Apple, Spotify. You know, you, you can download that and listen to it there. Well, I feel like we only skimmed the surface. There's so much more we could have discussed. <laughs> this might end up being a part two. Maybe it'll be live from Portugal at that some works. point. Yeah, yes. yeah, I'm definitely trying to start a zip code in Portugal. Yes, so absolutely. So when I come over there and, you know, because it's cool. Mm -hmm. It's a very cool place. I, Portugal presents as white and European. For sure. But it's not because mm -hmm. you have Angolans and Brazilians and Guinea-Bissau and San Tome and San Principe and Mozambique folk there. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> now. And then you have like other kind of brown people like Nepalese. Wow. You know? Nepalese food is good. Don't I have anybody. never Don't had sleep Nepalese on food. It. it is delicious. The little brown people. <laughs> The chef came out and looked at me. I stood up. He was like, oh, my God. I was like, I'm going to need two plates of that. Oh, boy. So I feel like I'm going to have fun. You're going to you know? have a good time. It's going to be good. And then I haven't broken out my dishes on them yet. You know, oh, I so. pulled that lobster mac and cheese. It's going to be a wrap. Oh, let me find out. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you had a house full of people I know, for Thanksgivings are, back yeah, in the day. fun. So I'm looking forward to it. I always want to look forward and look. I don't think of life as ending. And I right. don't think of life, I don't think of myself as retiring. Mm -hmm. um, I can't be around people who are 
in conversations of of um, decline yeah. or deprivation. It's not my thing. You know, no deprivation narratives, please. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not I'm like, no, take what you got, make what you want. For sure. <laughs> That's it. So, yeah, I want to just keep having fun. Keep having fun. I think that's a great place to end. Yeah. But I'm excited. I'm excited to I'm see. I'm really proud of what you guys are doing. Thank with you. This podcast Thank and you. your journeys and the work that I've learned about what you're doing. Um, I think it's, we just, I love being Black at this moment in mm-hmm. our lives. I know we have our challenges, but the fact that you can, you know, take your phone and go create. Right. Congregate. And, you know, that's just like, oh, if I had been able to do that mm-hmm. 20, 30 years ago, I am. It might be a different story. Right. And what's what where I draw strength from is, you know, there's still structural inequality and challenges working within corporate America and challenges with trying to create things. But when I hear about people who were the first over and over and over again, yes, I've had the the first, but I'm younger than you. So it's not every time. Right. I'm I'm not always blazing a trail. And sometimes you forget that what's difficult for you probably was much more difficult for someone else. So we, I draw strength from that for but sure. But it's all fertilizer. Mm-hmm, absolutely. That's all. As long as you remember, it's just fertilizer. Mm-hmm. It's going to smell, but it's good for you. Absolutely. That's a quotable <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Likewise. Thank you. To our listeners, listen, we are all about knowledge share here and gleaning from wisdom uh, from others and also offering up that wisdom. So be on the lookout. Sign up for notifications. Safio to see what they're doing. Check out Mr. Tompkins' books. Um, We're all about supporting our own here as well. Remember to like, share and subscribe to this podcast. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER. 